We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome into another edition of the Josh Hendrickson Show. I'm Neil McCready, joined as always by the uh, head of the economics department, I guess the chair of economics department at uh, at the University of Mississippi, uh, Dr. Josh Hendrickson. Josh, uh, good to see you in person for the first time in, in quite some time. How are you? I'm doing well. It's good to see you. Uh, it's good to be here. Um, good to be seen, I should say. Uh, happy Valentine's Day to you and yours, by the way, as we tape this, to everybody that's listening on Valentine's Day, for all of those who uh, either celebrate or are somewhat forced to celebrate, happy Valentine's Day on this random Wednesday in February when you're supposed to proclaim your love. For your significant other, whoever that may be. So happy happy Valentine's Day to everyone. All right. The Super Bowl just ended. You and I, both sports fans, uh, both Cubs fans. Cubs, as of this moment, have still done nothing in free agency. And it's Valentine's Day, which in baseball parlance means spring training has begun. <laughs> They've done nothing. It's, 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 uh, it's a frustrating thing. But the uh, Super Bowl occurred on, on Sunday. The Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, beat the San Francisco 49ers in overtime. And uh, one of the big storylines, of course, was the uh, presence of uh, Taylor Swift, one of the most recognizable, popular people on the face of the planet. She um, dates Chiefs tight end Travis Kelsey. And uh, that has led to um, a lot of angst in different quarters. It uh, It led to a massive... Super Bowl rating, even more than the Super Bowl usually gets, but it always gets an absolutely insane rating that shows you how much we love football and how big of a piece of Americana the Super Bowl is. Um, there was a tweet that you sent me. It's from uh, Aaron McIntyre, and, and uh, Aaron writes, in the total state, everything is political. Every public act, no matter how trivial, is imbued with political force. The fact that both sides will scream endlessly about the political significance of this picture. It's a picture of Travis Kelsey kissing um, Taylor Swift on the field following the game. A celebratory Super Bowl kiss between Travis and Taylor. Uh, is the, the fact that people will scream endlessly about this the political significance of this picture is a sign of a deeply troubled society. Uh, there was, there's a lot of talk about this relationship, you know, whether it's real. Uh, Travis Kelsey earlier in the football season filmed a uh, commercial for Pfizer in which he displayed on his, I want to say his right arm, may have been his left arm, it's really immaterial, on one of his arms, two Band-Aids, one for the flu vaccine and one for the COVID-19 latest booster. And um, Taylor Swift is a uh, is, is a... A supporter of of President Biden, and there's been a lot of talk that this was basically a psyop to uh, convince young voters to come out in November of this particular year and to vote again for the for the president against very likely the former president Donald Trump. I've gone all around the world on this. I've had some fun with it. Like in in the fourth quarter, as the Chiefs were driving down the field, I tweeted, "I wonder what's going to happen now <laughs> with the." A rolling eyes emoji. And I was more having fun than anything else. Everybody else, Carson was getting ready for a soccer game. Laura had gone to bed. It was just me. And sometimes you just pull out the old phone and entertain yourself a little bit. And that's what I did. And I got this great pushback from people about, you're a, 
conspiracist and you're whatever. And look, I do think the relationship very well may be truly legitimate. They might truly care for one another. Um, I'm glad that we can celebrate still a straight couple uh, on a on a football field. I'm glad that we can do that. That uh, he is certainly a big, strong, powerful man. I don't think anyone would dispute the fact that Travis Kelsey is a a, a man's man. Um, which I'm it's in this age, I'm surprised that we can still celebrate that, but we we can. So in many ways, I enjoy the coverage that they get. I've I've heard from several guys who say, hey, my daughter is into football, and we've been able to watch football together, and she never would have watched otherwise. And that's awesome. That's good for, for dad-daughter relationships. But it does seem to also be pretty force-fed into the, into the, the, the consciousness, which makes you wonder if, if there is not an agenda, but if maybe one side's sort of enjoying how much it does seem to bother another side. I think I have... I think I'm maybe going to have a different perspective on this than than other people, but okay. First, let's start with the relationship. So, I don't really get the political aspect of the relationship. Like, I can believe that it's legitimate. I can also believe that it's all for show. I mean, we see celebrities do this all the time. You know, like somebody all of a sudden is doing a bunch of commercials and they've got a new movie coming out or something like that, and then all of a sudden they're also like dating some famous actress or or something it's like this this happens right yes i grew up in the same town as uh katie holmes who was once married to tom cruise i think we could all admit that that was fake <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay um so i don't have you know i don't have any trouble thinking that this is you know maybe is not real uh but also who am i to say that it, that it's not real um but i i think i have a completely different perspective on this so so number one the reason i sent that tweet is that this is a huge problem. And and the problem is, is that everything now is political. Everything yep. has to be political. Everybody has to pick a side. Everybody has to decide whether this is good, whether this is bad. Um, but my perspective on this is kind of the opposite. I actually think that, uh, I mean, Travis Kelsey is kind of like a coded right wing. Okay. He's a, he's a football player. Um, and not just a football player, like he's a tight end. Okay. So, um, you know, he's like a man's man. This is this is more. Uh, he's he's sort of coded right wing. I have no idea what his politics are. Um, people draw a lot of conclusions from the sort of Pfizer ads, but you know, if Pfizer wants to pay me twenty million dollars to yeah. promote their vaccine, like, um, give me a call. Um, I the so to me, actually, like I I I think that. I mean, for twenty million, I will endorse damn near anything. <laughs> and so I think, like that, but but so I see this differently because I I actually think that like if the left thinks that this is a, a benefit to them, I, I think it could actually backfire because um, Taylor Swift, the sort of uh, America's sweetheart kind of celebrity, right, finds uh, her her man, and her man is this football player, you know, who's like a real man's man, you know. Uh, I don't know. I think like that has a potential to backfire. I mean, th this is because think about it. Everything that we are, uh, everything that we're told um, is about prioritizing the individual over everything else, right? Go to college and start your career. Then you can worry about marriage. Then you can worry about getting mm -hmm. married. Then you can worry about having kids. We don't have to think about those things right now. Right now, what's important is you do your thing. Yeah. And then later on you can you can discover this. And I I don't know how many people that you've ever met who are like 40 years old and not married but they don't seem very happy and they you know and um and and they don't have kids. I mean there was a there was a letter to the editor I think in the Wall Street Journal the other day where this guy was like, you know, when I was in college I read the book, The Population Bomb, which was basically about how, you know, we were going to have too many people and, you know, we were overpopulating the planet and we we're going to just, you know, destroy the planet and all that kind of stuff. And and this guy wrote a letter that was like, when I was in college, I read that book and now I'm like, um, and now I'm old and I have no grandchildren. And that's just incredibly sad. And the way that I see this is like, okay, suppose this is real and suppose that it works out. Um, This gives the right wing what they want. Right. Like they here you have this this happy couple, the Swifties see their their uh, their favorite, um, you know, celebrity find a man 
Yeah, I mean, and she's she's yeah. wildly popular with young girls. I mean, just just to the point where you I mean there's no disputing it. I mean, she is wildly popular with young girls. They love her, and so when people go, her she her music sucks. I mean, who cares? I mean, number one, her music is fine. Number two, look at the venues where she goes and the packed places and the money that people spend to go to her concerts and to take their daughters to their concerts. You, she resonates. Well, and, and right-wing people should should celebrate her. Like, she is, um, you know, she does things modestly, right? Like, in a world where there yeah. is no modesty, like, she does things modestly. And I think, so, number one, they should like that. But number two, like, okay, let's play this out. Let's say it's real. Let's say they get married. Let's say they have children. The fertility rate in the United States is going to go up. Like it's gonna go up. If you're a single man, this is the best thing that could ever happen to you because they're because they're gonna be single women looking for you. And so I I actually think that you know when people think about this, I, I think that the people on the right who are all worried about this, I think they're just overthinking it. And actually, I think that you know it would it, it could potentially backfire because I think that Taylor Swift you know finding uh, her husband and uh, starting a family would be. Um, you know that would be extreme. That that would bring about things that that the right likes and that the right cares about and that it wants. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way. That's that's, that's a good point. Um, what did you think of Tucker Carlson's interview with uh, Putin? Did you watch it? I watched a little bit of it. Um, I think that. Well. Let's first talk about the reaction to it. So that's what I was going to say. I was going to say more more than the interview itself. What was your reaction to the? the outrage from the mainstream media about giving uh, Vladimir Putin a voice. I don't get this at all. Like when I was a kid, it seemed like Dan Rather and, uh, and uh, Saddam Hussein used to just sit down and chat every year, right? Like <laughs> yeah. that seemed like a thing. Uh, and um, and so like this has always been something that the American media does is they go interview foreign leaders, especially foreign leaders that, you know, are um, – who are or who potentially are our enemies like they it's a regular thing that they do and it and it's always been part of uh it's always been part of journalism it's always been part of figuring out like what's going on in this person's head and there's this weird thing in our society now where it's like why do we give a platform to people and it's like well this is how we try to understand what's going on like if somebody you know Maybe you don't like what he says. Maybe you think he's going to sit down and he's going to tell a bunch of lies or he's going to spin things his way. Well, yeah. I mean, we know that ahead of time. The, the, the person watching the interview knows that, you know, uh, Putin is going to give his take on things. They know that he's going to spin everything as though he's doing the right thing. Like, sure. you, you know that ahead of time. And so by saying, like, oh, we can't platform this guy. I mean, what are we really saying? Like, are we really just saying, like... um, we can't trust the American people to just like listen to him and, and judge for themselves what they think. Yes. And that's exactly yeah. what they're saying. I mean, it's preposterous. I it's, mean, it's, it's why they're pushing back so hard against uh, Elon Musk and, and X or Twitter or whatever we call it now. The fact that it's not as censored, nearly as censored as, as it was before he spent $44 billion to buy it. The fact that they're pushing back so hard is, is to me, it's revelatory of look, we've, we feel like we need to control the message in order to control our businesses. Well, and then I think the the content of the interview, you know, like um, at, there were all these memes popping up because, you know, he was giving uh, Tucker like uh, his own little history lesson on the region and all these other sorts of things. I actually think this had nothing to do with the history itself. Because if you, I was thinking about this and I was like, why would he do this? Now, maybe he just wants to convince an American audience that this is a much longer conflict, or maybe he wants to convince Americans that he should be doing this. I actually viewed it quite differently. I actually viewed it as him uh, making a contrast with um, our president, right? That he can sit there and he can talk at length about the historical significance of what's going on, and you know, he can just, he can just do that and he can describe it and he can go back, you know, um, he can go back pretty far in time and, and talk about those things. And as a contrast with our president, like our president, I mean, half the time he doesn't know what town he's in, right? I mean, he, he can't, he can't oh, answer 100%. I mean, yeah. he sits down for a two hour interview and he gives a 30 minute answer that even if you think he's just 
filibustering and even if you think he's completely full of it and even if you think he's evil and awful and all of those things the one thing that you cannot argue and this is interesting because just a few years ago we were told when this thing got started that oh don't worry about it Putin's really sick he's about to die he didn't look really sick he didn't sound or look like someone who's on his deathbed and he certainly sounded lucid I'm not saying that he was speaking truth but he did sound lucid he sounded intelligent he sounded uh, able to have a, a conversation over an extended period of time intelligently, which is something that, as you said, our president cannot do. We'll get to the her report in a minute, but well, and he, well, and see, he knows that they've been saying that he's in bad health and that, and, and that kind of thing. And so, and he, his experience prior to being in charge was, you know, working for the KGB. So this is a guy who has worked in intelligence. So he knows how to manipulate an audience. He knows how to get across a point without necessarily making yep. that point. And so I really thought that, you know, those long winded answers were his way of um, demonstrating that like, Hey, I am actually fine. And mentally I am fit to do this. And, you know, and uh, you know, I, I have this, this knowledge and I have this, this stuff that, you know, is, is motivating me now. I mean, who knows whether it's actually motivating him or not, but it at least projects competence. Like you might not like what he's doing, but he, it, you know, he comes across as, as competent and reasoned. And so somebody, you know, and that doesn't mean what he's doing is right. That doesn't mean that it, what, it, that doesn't even mean that he's not evil. Like you can be competent and reasoned and still like, be 100%. Evil. And so, but the point is, is that, you know, uh, I think that was what he wanted. I think he wanted to uh, he wanted to appear, you know, uh, very competent. He wanted to uh, appear as though you know he has this deep understanding and reasoning for what he's doing, because that's the image that he wants to project, and that and he knows that that is both in contrast to how he's presented in our media, but also in contrast to our own leader. In terms of Carlson, no matter what you think of Carlson, I have to give credit here. If you describe yourself as a journalist, and he does, your job as a journalist is to bring people stories that are interesting, that are informative, and then let people determine their own opinions. And he went to Russia. He sat down with the the leader of, of Russia. And I've seen people say, oh, softball question. I didn't think so. I thought he asked pertinent questions. I mean, did he grill him? Did he, did he interrogate him to the extent that maybe you wanted? Maybe not, but... Maybe that that was maybe there you know he, he didn't think that was the the right venue for it. You're sitting in the Kremlin for God's sake. That being said, I mean he asked the justification for the invasion of of, of Ukraine. He asked about where things stood, and you got to hear Putin say that his desire is peace, which doesn't seem to be the desire of many in the United States as we. At this point, what, float another package to send, what is it, $60 billion over there to, in part, fund their pensions? While we have a country that's in different states of decline? I mean, I, I thought the fact that, that Carlson went over there and did that was, a, was a, a feather in his cap, quite frankly. Well, and I think, too, the other thing is, like, there were a lot of people who were saying, oh, he didn't ask the tough questions, but the questions they wanted him to ask are actually, like, things that, Putin has been asked many times by Western journalists and he gives non-answers to. So it's like, yeah, please ask him these same questions that other people have asked him that he doesn't want to answer or that he just filibusters. Yeah. Please ask him more of those. No, like who wants to hear that? You know what the answer is that he's going to give you ask him like they were like, Oh, ask him about, you know, political prisoners and ask him about the people who have died under mysterious circumstances. Like what, what do they think is going to come out of that? People have done this before. And, yeah. it, and it doesn't it doesn't give you anything like he just denies that it happened or he just talks until he feels like he's given a sufficient answer to like that. You'll move on to the next thing like it's. And so some of the criticism is just kind of dumb. Like, it's just like, why don't you ask the same questions we've been asking of this guy for 10 years or something? And like, why? That That's a complete waste. And and the other thing is, is that, you know. You see this with all western journalists like the people who don't do these interviews they always have these criticisms of oh like you were you were too easy on this person you know they've they've always done that but the thing is is 
what people have to realize is that you're going to be able, you have to pick and choose what questions you're going to be able to ask somebody like that because you can push them on some things, but you can't just grill them in an interview. Like they're just going to get up and leave. Right. And if that's what you're going for, fine. But if you actually want to hear from this person, you're going to have to figure out, okay, what are the questions that I can ask where I might get an answer that tells us something that we don't know already. So I know these are like themes. I'll get to this one in a minute. Let's get to the her report along those lines. Uh, for those who have been living under a rock, uh, the special prosecutor looking into the uh, President Biden when he was vice president, taking classified documents back to his residence in Delaware. They found the documents. Uh, many of them were top secret. They were in his garage, kind of in big boxes. It was kind of interesting to see his garage look like most people's garage. I was like, ah, you know, maybe we are all, all kind of the same. But uh, <laughs> what was interesting was they said, hey, we're not going to bring charges. And the reason that we're basically not going to bring charges is not because he didn't do anything wrong. He did. But in interviewing him, it's obvious that he has a, uh, a poor memory. He's an elderly man, um, declining, essentially. And that if you put him on a witness stand, he would basically, uh, the jury would be sympathetic to this elderly kind old man with a bad memory and that you, you you probably couldn't get a jury of his peers to convict him which okay i understood the rationale there i mean your goal as a prosecutor is to determine whether or not you could get a conviction and if you feel like you can't there's no reason to bring the charges but when you say that out loud about the president of the united states even though we all see it and we all know it when he puts it out loud, the, the reaction to it has been an ongoing uh, campaign of spin to try to prove to us that, no, what you see is not real. President Biden is fine. He's working so hard. He works harder than you. He works harder than I mean, it's kind of it's, it's funny because it's almost Trumpian. <laughs> it's no, not only yeah. not only is he smart, he's smarter than he's ever been. His age, frankly, is a superpower that was written. <laughs> yes. His age is a superpower. He has wisdom. How how much wisdom? He has more wisdom than you've ever seen. Wisdom. It's this is a comedy. It's like he does the Trump stuff. Trump says biggest crowd ever. How big was the crowd? It was the biggest crowd that anyone's ever drawn. It, people say that I, I I draw the biggest crowds. Everyone's saying it. I mean, it's here we go. And so my reaction to all of this, and I want to get yours, but the big thing I've taken from this is. Everyone's doing these stories about what the Democrats are going to do, and they're going to get to the convention, and they're going to get rid of Biden, and they're going to do this, and they're going to do that. I don't think so. I think the doubling down shows me that, no, no, they, this is the play, and they are going to run it. So I think the Democrats are kind of unclear on what they're going to do about the election because I think they recognize that they have a really big problem, and the really big problem well, they have two really big problems, actually. So the really big problems that they have is, you know, problem number one is that Joe Biden is incredibly unpopular. And not only is he unpopular, yeah. but if you but people forget this, you know, one of the reasons why people were opposed to Hillary Clinton and were in favor of Donald Trump <laughs> is what they saw is how Hillary was treated about this like email server, there was a sense in which she was above the law. Yes. And so there was some of the some of the voting that took place was backlash again of people being like, no, like no one should be above the law. We're, we're not doing this. And if you look at what's going on with Joe Biden, that's a, not only is he unpopular, but he's at risk of having the the, the same, uh, you know, the, this this same sort of characteristic that Hillary Clinton had is that just being seen as above the law. Because if you look at all these things, you know, I mean, look at Hunter, look at all yeah. of the things that have been alleged to have happened uh, with, with Hunter and Joe Biden. There's a sense in which people look at this and say, you know, they're above the law. They shouldn't be above the law. And he's already unpopular on top of that. So they have this huge problem where I'm not sure that, you know, in an election he can win. And I think that they share that. I think that they share that opinion. 
The problem is, is that they also can't just like convince him to like resign or step down or something like that, because then they have to have Kamala Harris and they don't want Kamala Harris because she's even more unpopular than Joe Biden. And so they're, they're in this predicament. Now the predicament that they're in though means is that what I think is going on is I think they're just trying to push this off as long as possible. And they have to kind of push it off as long as possible because if he were to come out now and say, oh, I'm just, I've just decided this is my one and only term and I'm not going to seek re-election, then people would be like, well, why don't you just resign? Let Harris take over. She says she's ready right. to serve. And um, and then she can run as the presumptive uh, nominee. Like she'd be running for re-election, right? And so I think there would be pressure for that, but they don't want that. And so they kind of have to push this off as long as possible, and then sort of maybe at the last minute say, well, you know, have him say, well, you know, I've decided that, uh, you know, I'm having some health uh, issues, and I, and I think that, you know, I'm not going to run, and then... There's no sign they of put that, somebody though. else. And I think if there was, a, if you were going to do that, we're middle of February. Well, the problem is they don't have anybody to replace him with. I mean, this is the problem. They don't have anybody... I mean, I, I guess my point, not to interrupt, but my point is... Is if 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 there was real consideration inside his family, let's face it, it's just Jill. If if she was considering, and the people are in the in the Democratic Party believed that there was real consideration that the president was thinking about not running for re-election, that he was thinking about stepping down for health reasons. I just don't think in today's news cycle you'd really be able to hide that. That 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 speculation would come out, and that speculation has not occurred. I mean, yeah, you hear people going, I think they ought to, and I think people's opinions, but nobody has come out and said, hey, sources inside the White House, close to the Biden family, say that the president is 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 contemplating whether or not he truly wants to run for a second term. In fact, you hear the opposite. You hear, oh, they absolutely want to run for another term. Oh, I don't, no, no, no. I don't, I don't think that he wants to. I think they would have to say, you know, I, I think that they there would have to be some sort of deal here. There would have to be some sort of like... Edict. Yeah, like you're not doing this. Like, you know, it, it's not going to work and think about what's good for the country. But at the end of the day, if he's the pre- he's the president of the United States and if he decides he wants to run, well, I think that's how the, do you stop him from running? Well, I think that's the fundamental problem is that one question that I have about things like this report is like these things just kind of pop into the news for a few days and then disappear. And that kind of seems like something that um, people want to pop into the news for a few days and disappear because I think if you are somebody who wants to convince him to not do this again, or if you're somebody who um, thinks that maybe it's not in the best interest for him to run, but you also don't want, you know, Kamala Harris to run, then maybe you just start planting these seeds with the American people because you get, you know, because then you can get to a point where you can go to him and say, look, the American people have doubts about your ability uh, to to do this job and that is you know that's going to cost us you know that could potentially cost us the election and look I don't know that he would ever go for it I, I don't know that he would ever go for it but I think that there are I think that there is a division within the Democratic Party where you know there are people who are like um you know who cares we're running against Trump you know they think that they can beat him with anyone but there are other people who are really worried, and I think those people who are really worried are trying to find creative solutions around this problem because I don't think it's a coincidence that every now and then this just kind of pops up, but then it disappears after a couple of days. Like it gets a little bit of attention, and then everybody stops talking about it. And I think that's because, you know, somebody's kind of pushing this out um, and getting this this message out and then kind of, you know, leaving it uh, and then leaving it alone for a while because you have to plant the seeds. Yeah, because how close is this thing going to be? Uh, and again, this is February, so there's still nine months. A little less than nine months until the election. Wall Street Journal today, a story that came out today. Um, they used, let's see, they 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 put the average of, of some major polls and then went in and got some um, outlet based on combined ratings from the Cook Political Report, Inside Elections with Nathan Gonzalez and Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball at the University of Virginia Center for Politics. So pretty pretty solid there. Has uh, the uh, race for the White House right now with the Democrats 
whoever that is, getting 221 electoral college votes. The Republicans getting 218. They have 20 leaning Democrat, 17 leaning Republican, which means so if those leans hang tight, it'd be 241 to 235. You gotta have 270 to get elected. 62 toss up, and they've got it right in the middle. In the Senate, they've got, if it were today, the, the Republicans would win 50 seats, Democrats would win 43 seats. There's four seats that lean Democrat, three that lean uh, Republican, the others are toss ups. And then in the House, they've got 202 seats safe or likely Republican, 188 seats safe or likely Democrat, 15 seats leaning Democrat, 11 seats leaning Republican. So we'll do the leans. That's uh, 203 for the Democrats, and that is 213 for the Republicans. Uh, very close. You need 218 for a majority. They've got 40, 45 uh, competitive kind of toss-up seats. It's a very close, very divided election where any anything on the fringes is going to impact the election, maybe from the top of the ballot all the way down in these in these swing states that will ultimately determine the the, the composition of power after the you know in January of twenty twenty five. Well and I think you're also facing the prospect of an election where the people who are going to be voting for Joe Biden, they're not really voting for Joe Biden. They're voting against Donald Trump. But also the people who are voting for Donald Trump, like they're just voting against like our ruling class, right? They're not yeah. even necessarily really voting for Donald Trump. They just are like the, you know, we have this ruling class. This ruling class hates me. And so I'm going to vote against them. And Donald Trump is the only person speaking up and saying that, uh, that you know, we need to, that these people are bad. And so he's the only person standing up to the people who hate me. And so then they're going to, you know, they're going to vote for him. And so I think, you know, but that implies that, you know, the, the election is almost going to have to be tight in, in that sort of circumstances because there are people who see Donald Trump as this like existential threat to, you know, quote unquote, our democracy. And but then you have all these other people who are just fed up um, with the Democratic Party, but also a lot of mainstream Republicans. And so they see Donald Trump as a way to sort of give the middle finger to th these people that uh, that they think hate them. All right. I want to get back into a couple of things. This, we talk about divisiveness. To me, I would think if I'm the Democrats, the stories like these scare the hell out of me because I, I have to think that mainstream America, the majority of Americans, those of us who aren't far right, aren't far left, read stories like this and go, what? Uh, the Chicago mayor, and his name escapes me right now, uh, recently touted a program where black-owned businesses were given $17 million to feed illegal aliens, and white-owned businesses did not qualify for the program. His quote, it really captures what I call the soul of Chicago. It's who we are, end quote. Well, I mean, historically, there's been a ton of corruption in Chicago, so maybe he's not wrong. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, sort of, uh, illegally excluding one group of people to give money to people who are here illegally, uh, that's kind of a weird flex to, you know, to, to, to sort of promote, yeah. um, and, uh, you know, but, uh, but I mean, <laughs> have you seen the memes by the way, out of like, uh, Massachusetts where people are like, this has been great. I took in a family of eight of Haitians. And it's like having my own personal chef, and they have their own uh, quarters, and uh, they're all they're they're, they're 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 we take care of them. It's <laughs> you're like so what you're you do know what you're kind of describing in a way here, right? I mean that that's probably not a it's probably not something you ought to be touting. Well, okay, first of all, Chicago's a mess. Chicago's a mess because um, they you know. Um, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. 
Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, Chicago is a mess because there, there's no one who is ever actually in power who is uh, both competent and, um, you know, meets their uh, constituents' needs, right? Like there's, um, you know, the way that they deal with crime is is ridiculous, right? Like the, uh, you know, crime is out of control in Chicago. I mean, I think I yeah. talked to you about this before. Like, you know, I used to go to Chicago all the time. Like, I don't really have a desire to go to Chicago. The last time I was in Chicago, um, you know, when I got back to the hotel, I found out that there was a, there was somebody who got shot right at a spot that I had walked by, um, you know, just like maybe like two hours before it actually happened. And so like that, you know, that doesn't make you want to come back. I think that, you know, yeah. and, and, it, and it's sort of out of control. But then, you know, also it's bizarre to me because if you if you actually follow this and you actually have any contact, you know, I, I occasionally see this stuff because I'm a Cubs fan. But like if you see Chicago media. There are starting to be a bunch of, you know, town hall meetings and things like this in predominantly black neighborhoods where they're yeah. saying, like, what are we doing? Like, we can't allow uh, these like illegal immigrants to come in to our town like we are our schools are, are already don't have enough resources and now we're going to add all these kids to the schools like we um you know some of us are already working two jobs and so you know now we're facing competition from these people who are coming in and so like it actually doesn't even make sense why he's like promoting this so highly because it seems to be increasingly unpopular and not just, you know, like a lot of times, you know, the unpopularity of illegal immigration is sort of associated with, you know, people being bigots or, you know, claiming that it's, you know, uh, certain groups of people who don't want them around, mainly white people. But that's not the case when you go to Chicago. When you go to Chicago, there's a lot of, there's a lot of backlash about these policies. And so it's also a weird flex for him to try to to promote this because it doesn't seem like it's popular with any constituency there is the flex just ideology well i think what it is is i think that if you think about what he's really saying is i think that he's trying to say like uh i mean i think it's a kind of a way of him being like look i know that you're unhappy with this so i'm gonna bribe you right i'm gonna bribe your communities like i'm gonna give money to your communities because i know you're upset and, you know, that that's a very old school version of politics. Um, but but also, I mean, they're, they're just we have if you go around and you look at the, the cities all around the country. They're filled with people who govern through ideology. And I, and I point this out all the time is that when I say ideology, I don't just mean like, oh, you have this particular set of beliefs. I mean that you have a particular set of beliefs, but those set of beliefs are not informed by experience or empirical evidence, right? They're, they're the, those ideas, uh, those beliefs, they're coming from things that you just think are true that you, or that you want to be true. And this is how they govern. And what they don't seem to understand is that, you know, this is going to have this is going to have adverse consequences on the places that they govern. I mean, we see this now. We see all of these major cities that are governed by ideologues. Like, the, you know, you see the rising crime rates in the cities. And um, you see the backlash in these cities from, uh, you know, from the population. 
But they remain committed to it anyway because they think that they know better. They think that they know what's right. What do you make of the the Ukraine bill? It's, by the way, I, I underestimated what it was. It's passed in the Senate. Um, Mitch McConnell's, while acknowledging that uh, the former president's um, support declining support for Ukraine is almost entirely because our nominee for president doesn't think it's a good idea, McConnell said. They were able to get uh, 22 GOP votes to uh, help push a, across a bill that would will provide $95 billion in foreign aid uh, in a package that includes funding for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan, and billions to replenish the Pentagon's weapons stock. One person uh, noted that nearly every Republican senator under the age of 55 voted no. Um, the older senators were the ones that he was able to pull over. Would you make anything of that? As we, as we are in an election year, somebody needs to state out loud that you know, just some basic fundamental truths about the world. So, like, here's a fundamental truth: like, you only go to war or get involved in war when you have a very clear objective, and it's in the national interest. Yeah, no one has articulated how this is in the national interest. No one has articulated what the objectives are. When I mean. Now, don't get me wrong. They do give you answers to these questions. They say things like, well, this is to preserve democracy. Okay, what, what does that mean? So how do we know if we're successful? How do, how do we know if we're successful if the objective is to preserve democracy? You can't fight wars against ideas. Like, there's no articulation of what this means. There's no articulation of why this is so important to the United States. The, like, I get, like, you know, I am sympathetic to the Ukrainian people. No one wants to be invaded. Uh, no one wants to go through war. No one wants to experience pain and suffering. But that's a reason for the Ukrainians to fight. That's not a reason for the United States to fight. The United States has to has to have a, a, a national a national interest motivating them to to participate. And the problem is is that what we seem to have is we seem to have an entire foreign policy establishment that's completely dominated by neoconservatives in both parties actually and what they and and their objective just seems to be like american empire and just america sets the rules and if you're not going to follow the rules then we're going to go out and we're going to punish you and that seems to be their objective and they're really upset with russia because russia never listens and russia never follows the rules russia never does uh what the neocons want and so I think that they just see this as a way to, um, you know, as, as a way to just create very significant costs for the Russians. Now, of course, the problem is, is that there are costs on the other side as well. So there are many Ukrainians who are losing their lives. There are U.S. taxpayers that are sending lots and lots of money uh, overseas uh, to help them fight. But how do we know that we win? And when do we know that we yeah. win? Yeah. If you can't answer that question, you shouldn't be involved. That's just a basic thing. And that's our entire foreign policy, our entire foreign policy for years now. You know, it's the same thing. Like when we went into Iraq and Afghanistan, there were no objectives for victory. The objectives for victory were like, oh, we're going to defeat terrorism. Okay, good luck with that. Yeah. You know, that's not that you're going to be there forever then. So you're just saying we're going to be there for until the end of time. Um the well, and, and you, you can't help but wonder if that is indeed the strategy. Is to, we're we're going to we're going to get into something that that requires that we uh, maintain this military industrial complex that makes these people rich. I mean, I have, I've, I mean, I have an essential question that I've always asked. You've you've talked about this before. I mean, these people go to Washington as wealthy people, but not insanely wealthy. They 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 have a salary that's what two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. It's nice money in Washington D.C. That is not rich money, and they come home mega millionaires, and. Obviously, that means that they were able to either just become phenomenal at stock trading or they peddled their trade. Well, and that's the other thing. I think I sent you this the other day. There's a clip uh, of this woman. I think it was on Fox News, like where she was talking about it. And they're like, why is this, you know, uh, you know, why is this in like the U.S. interest? And her answer was, you know, that it's it's in our interest to to oppose Russia, but also like this will help us to build up our military industrial base. And it was like, no, hold on. Yeah. <laughs> like, so um, that's like, 
if you say that, this is a prime example. Like I think I, I said this on the, uh, on like maybe like our first ever episode is like, there's this thing that, that you notice that happens all the time is like, um, it's not happening and it's good that it is right. So you have all of, yeah, you yeah. have all of these people who are like, Oh, we're just fighting this war to benefit the weapons manufacturers. Right. And they're like, no, that's ridiculous. You're a conspiracy theorist. And then you actually have this woman go on there and say, well, you know, it's going to build up our military industrial base. Well, what's that doing? That's, you know, <laughs> that's just providing profits to all of our weapons manufacturers. And so, you know, it's not happening and it's good that it is. Which leads to the next conspiracy, right? Because I keep saying, when people say to me, what bothers you so much about Ukraine? Don't you think we should we should stand up and protect the sovereign nation that's being invoid, invaded? And my answer is always, well, it's a little more complicated than that. But here's my thing. We're spending all of this money no one's giving us any evidence that we're a winning the that the war that we're even gaining back a square inch of land that we're doing anything to truly get the war to an to an end. There is an unwillingness on the part of the Ukraines to even sit down at the table and talk about peace. And wars, by by rule, escalate. And if we're going to be giving them all of this funding and all of these weapons, well, what's the next thing that we give them? Troops. So if you start sending over American troops, you're starting to send over young American people into a war that we know nothing about. And you hear the horror stories about what's happening with Ukraine and the, the, the men in, in Ukrainian society. I have no idea whether they're true or not, but that's out there. I don't know that we need to be sending American males to that. And people say, well, that won't happen. Well, I, I don't. And I, I, I'm not speaking on just my my stance here. I've talked to other people. Why should I trust you when you say that? You've said all these other things won't happen. They happened. When I say, well, that's that that can't happen. Well, it won't. Just send the money and shut up. Well, what happens when we money's not enough? Every time this guy comes to Washington in his fancy little uniform, actually it's not even that fancy, and he just walks around talking to people and they just kowtow to him and they get down and kiss his boots. What happens when he finally says the magic words, we need troops? Well, first of all, it also must be said that we're not just sending money over there. We're borrowing money to send over there. And this is an important point because I think that this sort of neocon foreign policy is something that can only exist in the world that we currently live in. And so what I mean by that is, is that In the old days, if you were a president or a king or something like that and you started a war and the war was incredibly costly and it was going on and on and on and, you know, you weren't winning, you either had to do one of two things. You had to negotiate peace or just keep fighting and hope for victory. But if you if there was no victory, you basically bankrupted your state. Yes. And if you bankrupted your state, that was it for you. Yes. You were gone. Yes. Never to be heard from again. Yes. Banished. These and now... We live in a world where our U.S. Treasury securities are the global reserve asset of the world. So foreign central banks all around the world hold these, hold these bonds. And they're willing holders of, of these bonds. And so what happens is, and, and not only that, is that as the world, its economy grows, the demand for these bonds increases. And so as you borrow more money the demand for those bonds is rising at the same time. So you don't see this show up in interest rates. You don't see this show up in any other economic data. And there is no fiscal pressure on your leaders to say, hey, this is costing too much money. Maybe we need to think about what we're doing here. And I think that this is one reason why we end up in these conflicts where there's no objective. Because there's no, there's no financial constraint that they think that they're going to hit that is going to... Um, th that that's going to penalize them. That's going to lead to them being removed from power or that lead to the United States losing in the conflict. They don't think that that's possible. And to some extent, they're, they're correct. But the problem is, is you as you accumulate more and more debt, eventually people get to the point where they say, you know, I don't know if they're going to pay off this debt. So maybe instead of holding these U.S. Treasury bonds, 
um, you know, as a reserve asset in our central bank, like maybe we, maybe we sell some of these and maybe we buy something else. Like maybe we buy gold or maybe we buy some German bonds or something like that, you know, and they, and they start diversifying. And now the demand for your debt is now suddenly falling. And so if you're continuing to just grow this debt, you're going to get to a point where this is unsustainable and you're going to get to a point where there are no buyers for, for these bonds. And once that happens, there's going to be a buyer of last resort, and that buyer of last resort is going to be the Federal Reserve. And when the Federal Reserve starts buying those bonds, what that means is is that you're going to is that you're going to pay for this with inflation. And people don't seem to take this seriously at all. They don't seem to think about this. They think that you know we can run up as much debt as we want, and it doesn't matter. And that's part of the issue here. Is that I think that they think that they just are working with an, an unlimited budget where we can just send all of this money because you know what difference does it really make? You know we're borrowing at low interest rates. Like what does it matter? And it matters because it's not sustainable. You you cannot do this, and you can't do it forever. And the more that you do this, you know the the worse it's going to get. And it's not just that. Like if if all you were doing is fighting endless wars, you might be able to get away with that for for a long period of time. But that's not everything that we're doing. The government spends a lot of money on other things other than war. And so if they're spending money on a lot of other things, there are multiple issues that are that, that could potentially create a scenario where you have too much debt. And they and and this is just not a consideration. They just think that it's not that way, but but part of the issue here is is I think that they look at like the bond market and they look at interest rates and they go, well, you know, if we were really borrowing too much, you know, the interest rates would be much higher. But what they don't seem to realize is that like debt crises are not gradual. Like um, there's a great line in, a, in an old Hemingway book where um, where one of the characters is asked, how did you go bankrupt? And he says, gradually, then suddenly. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that is, and I think that that's a great quote because that's also like how governments go bankrupt gradually and then suddenly. It's not though like if you're borrowing too much that interest rates just gradually start to rise until they get to a point where you can't borrow anymore. You know, a debt crisis is much more like the life of a turkey, right? The turkey is just living on the on the farm and he's got a good life and here's this nice farmer who comes along every day and he feeds me and this is this is isn't this the best? I just get to spend all this time outside and you know, run around. And, uh, and every day this guy just comes along and feeds me and, and, you know, you just think this farmer, he's the greatest guy in the world. And then one day he shows up and he kills you and he serves you for Thanksgiving dinner. And that's what a debt crisis is like. Things don't seem to be going that poorly. And then one day they seem to be going incredibly poorly. Yeah. I was just envisioning the turkey that does sort of suck. I mean, (laughs) every day you think this is great. All right. So it leads me to this because obviously we fund a lot of our country's uh, expenses, the Ukraine pensions, with American tax dollars. Uh, the data is back from 2021. The top 1% of taxpayers, 1.53 million people are taxpayers, paid a record high 45.8% of all federal income taxes versus a record low of 34.4% paid by the bottom 95%. I mean, understand, do the math here, everybody. That's a 4% middle class. When they say there's no shrinking middle class, <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is. But according to uh, Biden and the Democrats, the rich aren't paying their, quote, fair share, which, of course, begs the question, what would be the fair share? I realize you're never going to get this job in all likelihood, but if I hired you and I said, Hey, look, here's the deal. Figure out the tax code, make it, make it, uh, make it make sense. Make it as equitable as you can. Um, go for it. What, what would you come back with that would, and how different would it be from the current American tax code, federal tax code? Well, I mean, I think that if you want, I mean, if you just wanted a much more efficient tax system, what you would do is, you know, you would not have a progressive tax system and you would eliminate, you know, almost all of these deductions and you would just pay and and everybody would just pay some percentage of their, of their income in taxes. I mean, I think what some people don't always think about, or maybe what some people don't even realize is that you're not when we have a progressive tax system. So if you make more money than I do, even if our tax rates were the same, you would pay more in taxes than I do. 
But we have a progressive tax system, which means that if you make more money than I do, you actually pay a higher rate yes. of taxation than I do, right? So you not only pay more in taxes, you're paying a higher tax rate. And this oh, is where when, these- when my accountant came back a couple of years ago and said, well, you made, and I won't give the number out, but you made X more than you made a year ago. In any real world, the reaction should be, hell yeah, good for me. My reaction was, oh shit. So what does that mean? And it meant bad. It meant bad. Well, you've been paying monthly, you've been paying payroll, you've been paying quarterly taxes, but you're going to owe another X. Really? Well, and one of the well, and see, this is one of the issues. Actually, um, one of the issues that makes it easier for the government to tax us is that they just take it right out of our paycheck, so you just never see that money. You don't one hundred percent. Like um, anybody who's ever had to pay estimated taxes knows that with the pain of writing that check. When you write that check for estimated taxes, like you're actually you know taking time out of your day to take money out of your bank account to pay the federal government. And that is painful. And so you see that. And it also makes you think more about what are what are, what is this money being spent on? Like, where is this money going? What is it for? And I think one of the things is that the fact that everybody has their taxes taken out of their check actually, you know, um, th- this also actually clouds these issues about who's paying taxes and who's not paying taxes. Because if your income is sufficiently low... Um, you know, you might be paying income taxes, but then you might get a tax return that, and that tax return might be a refund of all of the taxes that you paid. And so when we're thinking about, you know, the issue, here's, here's my main issue. The, the stuff about, you know, oh, rich people don't pay their fair share or there's rising, um, you know, inequality or something like that. Like the, the difficult thing about these questions is like, I don't know what this means. Like if you say the rich aren't paying their fair share, well, what's their fair share? Give me a number. Yeah. Tell me what the share is. Like what is the what what should they be paying? You know, because if you're saying they're not paying their fair share, then by definition there's some optimal amount. And if they're and so what is that optimal amount? And when and when people talk about inequality, it's the same thing as they'll say, well, there's there's rising inequality, and that's treated as like a bad thing, and like falling inequality is a good thing. But actually, you know, you tend to see, like, if you think about this cyclically, you tend to see like increases in inequality when, when, you know, uh, you know, when times are, are good and you see, um, or I said that backwards, you see increases in inequality when times are bad and you see reductions in inequality when times are good, because when times are good, like everybody's wages are going up. Right. And, um, but when times are bad, the, you know, people at the bottom tend to suffer more than the people at the top. And so, um, but, but so if you think about it cyclically, it's like, okay, so you might think um, you, you might think about these things, but then when you're talking about over the long term, I don't know what this means over the long term because over the long term, what's the optimal amount of inequality, right? Like, yeah. uh, it, 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 you know, these are, these are questions that don't, you know, I mean, I can write, you know, like, I mean, I'm sure that I can find an economist who will write down a model, right, and tell me what the optimal amount is, but like, uh, then we'll just be nitpicking the model until the end of time. Like some of these questions are just political talking points masquerading as economic analysis. And when it comes to tax policy, when, when it comes to tax policy, the reason the Biden administration and, and people like that say, oh, the rich aren't paying their fair share is that what they recognize is that they're going to have to raise taxes in the future. And they want to act like the only people who are going to pay those taxes are rich people because they don't want to tell you like, oh, your taxes are going to go up. They want to say, well, well, and I want them to define rich, yeah. like define rich. What does that mean? Top what percent of, of, of earners? Because sometimes the numbers that they say, that's rich. I go, no, that's really not rich. I mean, anybody making $400,000. Okay, well, if, if you're making $400,000 in certain parts of the country, yeah, you're doing well, but you're not filthy rich. In today's inflation and stuff, if you're living in, I don't know, Boston, you're doing well, you're fine, but you're not. You're not rich. You couldn't just stop working. You, 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 you don't have enough to live off of your money for the next decade. Well, and wages fluctuate over time. So, like, during your peak earning years, you're making more than you are at any other point in, in your lifetime. But, like, during those peak years, your income might be sufficiently high that somebody would call you rich. But that doesn't mean that you're rich in general. Because it depends on, you know, like how many years are you going to earn that income? 
And and most wildly rich people, let's be clear here, most wildly rich people have earned that wealth. They have come up with some idea. They're 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 at the top of their field. They're they're elite at what they do, and they usually the money go. They're not hoarding all of the money. They're hiring people. They're building businesses. They're 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 doing things that lead to economic growth, almost all the time. Yes, are there some people that are born? Rounding third base with the silver spoon in their mouth, of course. But there aren't many of those people. In reality, the, 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 if you dig into it, you'll find that most incredibly wealthy people uh, earned it. Well, the thing, too, is that, okay, people respond to incentives. So just saying, hey, we're going to raise taxes on this group of people, well, then that group of people knows that they face higher taxes and they're going to take actions to try to minimize that yeah. tax burden. Yeah. And so some of that is going to be, you know, some of that is in the form of reducing whatever activity is generating the income, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, which is bad for the economy. Close um, some of their businesses, lay right. people off. Yeah, exactly. But, but also some of it is like wasteful because what they'll do is like, well, I'll just uh, hire an accountant who can go through and figure out, you know, um, any loophole that I can exploit, any any sort of special thing that I can get to kind of reduce my tax liability and that's entirely wasteful. Like they're spending resources um, just to avoid uh, taxes. And so if you just, you know, like, so society would actually be better off if you, they could just avoid that wasteful activity. Although accountants everywhere just got really angry about that. Yeah. Uh, all right. I'm going to tease this for our next time because this is something I'm, I'm pretty interested in. There's a story that's out in the last day or so. Uh, the Georgia governor, Brian Kemp, is sending reinforcements to the Texas border. Texas and the feds are kind of having a fight about what the border should look like, uh, how how border in, enforcement should be enforced, if at all. They're trying to come up with compromises on how many illegal aliens can be let in a day when some of the people on the right are saying, well, any illegal aliens across the border is illegal by definition. Um, and some people speculate, and this word's the wrong word because we hear civil war and we think Gettysburg, right? We think that kind of thing. But some people speculate this could be some of the beginning of a national fracture. Governors actually coming out saying, not only do we support Texas, we're gonna send we're gonna send our, our some of our reserve troops to go help Texas protect the border. And you're protecting the border against federal agents who are trying to obey federal uh edicts. To, to run the border in different ways. And that feels like conflict. Well, I don't think people realize how significant that this actually is, because if you think about what's going on, there are always times when like a state or a group of states might be sort of upset with the federal government or something like that, or yeah. they might be, they might have a disagreement with the federal government. But here, what you actually have is you have a federal government that's actively not enforcing the law. Right. They're not they they're not stopping people from crossing into the country. So they're not enforcing the law. And then you have states that are saying you're not enforcing the law. And initially it was just statements like, hey, you're not enforcing the law. This is wrong. You know, and that's normal. That's totally normal. That happens all the time. Yeah, always. But this time what you have is you actually have states devoting resources to send to the border as a way of trying to enforce the law and discourage people from crossing. And I don't think that people realize like how significant this is. You, I mean, you basically have this conflict between the states and the federal government, and this isn't just posturing. Right. When you stand there and say, hey, you know, Joe Biden enforced the law, like that's posturing. When yeah. you say, hey, I'm sending a bunch of, you know, National Guard people down to the border. Down to Texas and multiple states are right. doing it. Yeah. Then this is a much more serious thing because this actually requires you expending resources, sending human beings into action. It requires yeah. action, not yes. words. It's easy. Right. Like you said, it's easy just to talk. Yeah. Yeah. Just stand up on, on the stump and bang the thing and, yep. and and criticize the president it's another thing to say no we're going to defiantly send troops to texas in our sh- in our show of of action that we support what texas is doing disputing what's coming out of the white house well but i think this summarizes to me that's significant i think this summarizes the big problem in the country though is i think that this this conflict is the same conflict that that is what you know produces donald trump as the republican nominee for president is that there are Americans 
who feel like we have a ruling class in this country that does not care about them, that perhaps hates them, that doesn't that doesn't like them, that doesn't like their way of life, that doesn't respect them, that's not interested in their in uh, what they want out of their government, what they want out of their society, and. I just see this as a manifestation of the same conflict because when you go around and you talk to people, these people constantly say the same thing is like, well, um, you know, why aren't they enforcing the law? Why aren't they, you know, why, why is the border just wide open? Why are we just allowing anybody to come in that, that wants to come in? Even people who are in favor of more lenient immigration policies, even lenient immigration policies for illegal immigrants, mm-hmm. you, you have some of those people are still kind of like this is crazy. And so when you reach that point, when you have when you come to a point where um you know people just fundamentally disagree about what should be done and where people feel like their voices aren't heard, they're starting to turn to the states and say, "Hey, you do something about this." You know, the federal government doesn't listen to us. You go do something about it. Like you, you know, you stand up for us that we care about this. Right. And, uh, and so to me, I I don't think that it gets enough attention. I don't think that people are considering the ramifications of this. This is potentially significant because you're setting up a conflict between the federal government and not just Texas, right? It's one thing if it's the federal government in Texas, you know how that's going to work out. Like the federal government is just going to win. Texas would eventually just kind of acquiesce and, Maybe posture, maybe do things, but like in the end of the day, it's just Texas right. against against the federal government. But when you have multiple states banding together and saying, no, enough is enough, do your job, this is a hugely significant thing. And this is and and this represents the the sort of division that we that we see in in the country is that people are kind of fed up. They just think that the government doesn't care about them, the government doesn't listen to them, the government's not responsive of them. And so what are they doing? They're turning to more local leaders and saying, You take care of this. Don't let them do this. And um, and so it's going to pose, in, in, you know, interesting questions about, you know, what states are and aren't allowed to do what the federal government is and isn't allowed to do and what the what the state's role is when the federal government refuses to do what it is required by law to do. We'll dive into it next time. We'll get together uh, in a couple of weeks, be the end of February, Super Tuesday, be right around the corner. Be a lot to talk about. So I appreciate uh, the time very much, Josh. Yeah, good time. That's Josh Hendrickson. We'll be back, uh, like I said, in a couple of weeks with another edition of the Josh Hendrickson Show. Until then, have a uh, great rest of your week. Take care. Talk to you soon. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.